Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we've seen the GOP version of the health reform bill, and it's generated quite a bit, shall we say, concern from a number of sectors. Paul Ryan recently revealed American Healthcare Act goes a long way to reduce benefits for millions of Americans, eliminates the Medicaid expansion, and greatly reduces the essential benefits required to be covered by the insurance industry. And as you might imagine, Mark, there are differing views on how viable this proposed replacement to Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act really is. President Trump had promised there would be health care for everybody, and that would be far better under his administration. But an estimated 15 million Americans would lose coverage and costs would increase for many consumers. That analysis is corroborated by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Subsidies for purchasing health insurance will be based on age, not income, which would impact older Americans significantly, many of whom generally have more chronic health issues. And states with large Medicaid populations would be especially hard hit. Ohio alone stands to lose from $16 billion to $26 billion over the next several years if the Medicaid expansion goes away. The governors of Ohio, Indiana, and many other states are urging Congress and the administration to reconsider that approach. Well, that is a very dramatic impact on just one state of Ohio. Uh, But another concerning provision of the GOP plan, Mark, would eliminate requirements for insurance companies to cover mental health and addiction services, something that has taken so long to get in place. This, of course, has many health professionals deeply worried about their capacity to continue to confront this still somewhat unmet need, especially in light of the deadly opioid crisis, which, in fact, is now the leading cause of accidental death in this country. But, you know, the way forward is not so clear in the Senate. Several Republican senators said they will not support the bill, which would eliminate the simple GOP majority in the Senate. There's a growing call for more negotiations and compromise if the GOP version of reform is to move forward. These are not two words that come easily on Capitol Hill, Margaret. That's right. But, you know, we have seen significant bipartisan support for tackling the opioid crisis in this country, something that affects every state, every county in the country, with drug overdose deaths reaching 50,000 in 2015 alone. This is just a national tragedy that knows no boundaries, affects families across all geographic and socioeconomic sectors and political sectors as well. So we thought we would revisit our conversation with Paul Gianfrido, president of Mental Health America, which seeks to advance parity, coverage, and treatment for all diseases of the brain, including addiction. He's a passionate advocate at a time when we really need to have this conversation. Indeed, Margaret Laurie Robertson also stops by. The managing editor of factcheck.org looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Paul Gianfrido in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The report by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office on the potential impact of the American Health Care Act is not sitting well with a number of entities across the health and political spectrum. The GOP health plan is designed to repeal as much of the Affordable Care Act as possible with simple majority votes and plans to defund many of the ACA's initiatives. The CBO estimates repeal of the individual mandate, the elimination of the Medicaid expansion, and more could cost states and millions of health consumers their coverage. And 
the elimination of corporate taxes on medical devices, tanning meds, and other profit-generating entities would also eliminate funding for the law's mandated programs. According to the nonpartisan CBO, the American Health Care Act would lead to 24 million Americans losing health coverage in the coming years, leading to a projected uninsurance rate of 52 million Americans in eight years, higher than before the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Cost for insurance would go up initially, an estimated 20 percent next year. But those who do buy insurance will receive some tax credits over time. Younger, healthier people would pay much lower premiums. The GOP bill will end up costing older, sicker people up to five times as much in premiums. But elimination of the Medicaid expansion is expected to have the biggest impact on the poor and working poor who now receive coverage. An estimated 95 percent of those who receive coverage under the ACA would not be able to retain it under the GOP plan, and states would lose big as well, leaving them unable to afford to cover more of their vulnerable residents. Republicans in the Senate have a slim two-vote majority, and a number of Republican senators are raising concern about the bill, including Senators Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, all Republicans. The American Health Care Act will face an uphill battle in the Senate without full GOP support. Meanwhile, a bill sponsored by Republican Virginia Fox of North Carolina has been getting some pushback, a bill that would give employers the right to access a person's genomic information for employment. The bill H.R. 1313 would, according to supporters, provide employers the legal certainty they need to offer employees wellness plans, which they claim will promote a healthy workforce as well as lower health care costs. While all Democrats on the committee voted against the bill, all Republicans voted in favor. Relatively little resistance has been registered for President Trump's pick to head the Food and Drug Administration. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is an MD, Wall Street operative, and longtime friend of the pharmaceutical industry, working inside the FDA now. Opponents fear he may be too cozy with the industry and could promote changes that would put drug approval ahead of consumer safety. Although observers note he is far less likely to act recklessly than some others who were under consideration. Saving an hour of daylight, but at what cost? It's becoming increasingly clear that losing an hour of sleep when clocks spring forward to promote daylight savings time has become a growing health concern. Incidents of stroke, a 25% increase in heart attack, and increased car accidents have been charted in the aftermath of clocks being moved ahead one hour. Sleep researchers note that even a slight shift in sleep patterns can have negative effects. South by Southwest began as a gathering of artistic souls sharing their musical ideas. But since the festival's inception, the exchange of ideas has spread to other areas. Former Vice President Joe Biden addressed a gathering at South by Southwest, saying he would have liked to have been the president who presided over the end of cancer, as we know it. Biden chose not to run for president on the heels of the death of his son, Beau, from brain cancer. Biden said he'd like to work with the current administration on the continued moonshot for cancer initiative, but lamented the current administration is also keen on denying the body of science that supports things like climate change. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines.
Uh, we're speaking today with Paul Gianfrido, president and CEO of Mental Health America, the nation's oldest community-based nonprofit organization committed to improving mental health in this country. Mr. Gianfrido was appointed in 2013 to the National Advisory Council at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration. He has also served as president of Quantum Foundation, as executive director of Indigent Care in Austin, Texas, at the Connecticut State Legislature, and as mayor of Middletown, Connecticut. He's written extensively on behavioral health issues, including his critically acclaimed book, Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia. He's a graduate of Wesleyan University and a good friend of ours. Paul, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for inviting me to be on. You know, we're in the middle of uh, National Mental Health Awareness Month, and when you look at the stats, you realize no one is immune. It's estimated that one in five Americans will have some diagnosable mental health issue in any given year, and yet many simply don't get help they need. I wonder if you could tell our listeners about the impact of unmet behavioral health needs in this country and why diagnosis and treatment pose such a challenge. Well, for the longest time, we've treated mental health concerns and conditions as public safety problems and not as public health problems. As a result, uh, when we deinstitutionalized our population in the 1980s, we reinstitutionalized that population. And when we closed our state mental health beds and facilities, we reopened them as county jails and state prisons. That puts a real damper on people's willingness to seek help and to take out into the open the kinds of uh, symptoms they've got, the kinds of feelings they've got, the kind of concerns they've got. What Mental Health Month since 1949, when we began to sponsor it, has been about is taking a month where people can talk about mental health openly. People can talk about what it feels like to have a mental illness openly and get services better integrated into the regular healthcare delivery system. Well, Paul, you've had a lengthy career in public service. You have focused so much effort on improving mental health, and now you're at the helm of the nation's oldest organization dedicated to promoting earlier diagnoses and improving access to mental health services. So talk with us about the key goals of Mental Health America and how your local partnerships and efforts like your B4 Stage 4 program are really positioned to help achieve these goals. Yeah, what Mental Health America stands for is four things. Prevention for all, early identification and intervention for those at risk, integrated health, behavioral health, and other services such as education services, housing supports, employment supports for those who need them, with recovery as the goal. While that's a great elevator speech, what we found in recent years is you have to be able to put this into 140 characters or less. So we've made mental health concerns and conditions the only chronic diseases we wait until stage four to treat. So a year and a half ago, we launched our Before Stage 4 initiative, which is designed to move people's attention upstream in the process, to have people think about intervening at stage one or stage two, not waiting till a crisis has occurred. And we've put a lot of our resources uh, by launching an online screening program to make ubiquitous screening the goal of everyone in America, because we believe that kids should be screened for mental health concerns as frequently as they're screened for vision or hearing. We think adults should be screened as frequently as they're screened for uh, blood pressure, and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force agrees with us. They think everybody over the age of 11 ought to be screened annually for mental health. Well, Paul, you just announced this ambitious initiative with the Walgreen change, and the goal is to provide behavioral health screening for at least 3 million people through Walgreen's national network of stores in the coming years. Tell our listeners a little more about the program, how it's going to be administrated, and how will folks who receive diagnosis will get interventions they need in a timely fashion? 
millions of people come to us via our website and through social media, and millions of people every day visit Walgreens' website. So initially, we've put this together to operate in this virtual environment, where if people go to mhascreening.org, they're able to screen anonymously using the very same clinical tools that uh, the doctor might use for depression, for anxiety, for psychosis, and for other conditions. Walgreens has now put a link from their website onto our screening page so that we can get more people to screen. What we're providing for Walgreens is a set of online tools and resources that people will be able to use post-screening to learn more about the conditions they've got. And what Walgreens is going to be able to provide are some more linkages to their chat with a pharmacist program, for example. Our local affiliates will be in a position to take referrals as well and get people connected to local providers in their communities so we will have a fully fleshed out screening to supports program. Many in the healthcare profession find themselves when trying to manage behavioral health issues. Often patients don't follow through with recommended treatment, but we know that that's often a consequence of there being nothing to follow through with, right? So, that's right. But I'm interested in this breakthrough system that Walgreens is using, and that may be part of what you were referring to that facilitates interaction with clinicians online uh, and includes a medication adherence tool. Talk about how emerging technologies like this are, are making a large-scale program possible in a way that would have been very difficult to achieve in the past, and, and what's unique about this one? Yeah, in the past, we were pretty much tied to physical locations. They'd pretty much have to go to someone or someplace. You know, in recent years, the, the online environments have changed this dramatically, and there are a lot of services that are moving into digital space. The best ones are Fitbits, which give you instantaneous feedback about certain things that are going on in your body, like your heart rate and the number of steps you're taking and things like that. We're trying to take advantage of the fact that young people especially are interested in using these kinds of tools. Three-quarters of the people who use our screening tools are under the age of 25. Two-thirds of those people tell us they've never been diagnosed with anything. Pretty hard to get somebody to adhere to treatment when they've never received a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to get them to do is take a next step with some of these tools and actually be willing to talk further about it, be willing to take their results to a clinician at stage one in the process where recovery comes a lot easier. We're speaking today with Paul Gianfrido, president and CEO of Mental Health America, the nation's oldest community-based not-for-profit organization committed to improving mental health in this country. Mr. Gianfrido also served on the National Advisory Council at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration at HHS. Paul, you've written about your own personal experience navigating the mental health system in your book, Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia. And you even noted as a young lawmaker, you inadvertently supported laws that uh, made screening treatment options more difficult for families to access. I wonder if you could share with us the story about Tim and the, the navigation that you had to go through and also give us an update on how Tim's doing. Yeah, Tim right now is 31 years old. And for the last 10 years, he's been mostly homeless on the streets of San Francisco. Uh, recently, he's come back into services a little bit, has had some housing. We actually got a chance to visit him when he was doing very well and hoping to stay in services. But all too frequently, when he's come back into housing first, uh, he's tended to be evicted from that housing, and then we lose track of him for weeks or months at a time again. Uh, part of the reason he's evicted is because he just doesn't follow the rules because mm -hmm. he's got schizophrenia and can't. What I think we made as our biggest mistake in the 1980s uh, was not understanding that while the people who were coming out of our state hospitals were adults, the people who were going into them were kids. 
And these are childhood diseases, childhood problems, and we never built a system of supports around our children. What happened to Tim is what happens to a lot of kids uh, like that. They get into the school system, and the schools have no idea what to do with them. Even though they're legally required to provide individualized services and programs for those kids, it's a lot easier for them when a child has a physical disability than a serious mental illness. And so I think that that's the mistake we made as a matter of public policy. It's a mistake policymakers have doubled down on in the course of the last 30 years. So it's not just that Tim ends up where he is with a pretty tragic outcome, but not as tragic as as the worst outcomes that many, many parents and families have had to deal with. We're continuing to see policies in America that are going to continue to put more people like Tim out on the streets. And we at Mental Health America are really trying to put in place policies that will recognize early, that will get services to kids in the schools, in their communities early on, and that will uh, change the trajectories of, of these kids' lives. Well, Paul, families often encounter the toughest challenges once kids age out of the system and aren't eligible for some of those supportive programs they may have had. And certainly as the state budgets are floundering, we see families finding it tougher and tougher uh, to find safe homes and dependable programs for their adult children who grapple with complex mental health issues. And in fact, The Atlantic had a very powerful article describing the nation's jails and prisons as the largest mental health hospitals in the country. I wonder uh, if we could talk a little more about solutions for these young adults and older adults now. What are the solutions to really help these people? Well, I think the simplest solution is, in a way, the most obvious one. We've asked the members of Congress to include a provision in federal reform legislation that would end the incarceration of nonviolent offenders with serious mental illness within 10 years. States could do that as well because there's plenty of money and plenty of resources out there, but we've got to stop putting people in jail. If we did that, Mm -hmm. we would free up literally millions and millions of dollars that we would be able to put into the building of the Mm community-based mental health systems that we promised to people Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 1980s. And it's as simple as that, I think. Let's get them out of the jails and let's move the money from the jails to follow the people back out in the communities, put clinical support folks, peers, clinicians into the mix, as opposed to just judges and lawyers and police officers. You know, Paul, you've talked about getting uh, behavioral health services to children early on. Uh, We've also been very committed to sort of redefining the primary care space and have made available to schools throughout our state the opportunity to have a behavioralist full-time in their school. And so many schools are responding to that uh, to offer. We're in a couple hundred right now. But also in the primary care space, you know, the embedded behavioralist in primary care. We really need to take advantage of the care delivery system and try to have people reimagine the way uh, delivery might happen. And uh, we note that the Affordable Care Act is out there trying to promote models aimed at better outcomes. What do you see as interesting initiatives in the primary care space that people in the country should be keeping an eye on? Well, you're way more forward thinking uh, and forward acting than a lot of folks in the rest of the country are. And uh, that's just a fact. What I think that people need to be doing, even in areas where people haven't been as progressive in their thinking, is making certain that primary care clinicians are educated to and informed about uh, the need for integration of health and behavioral health services. A lot of these uh, responsibilities fall on them anyway, whether they're pediatricians or adult service providers. Similarly, the behavioral health providers need to understand better about how to integrate their work into primary care and into educational settings and others. I really do think we have to break down a lot of the barriers between the the schools and and the educators 
who understand that their primary purpose is to educate kids, but don't always understand that some kids aren't available to learn unless you deal with their health issues as well. And particularly, that's the case when you're dealing with mental health issues. And I think that involves providing supports into the educational system. But if we then turn around and have a special ed system that says, if you're going to provide those supports, you've got to pay for them, most schools are going to continue to be reluctant to do that. So I think we also need to reform some of our special education laws and maybe take a look at allowing mandatory parts of kids' individualized education programs be covered not by the education department, but by their kids' private health insurance to provide some of those services and supports. Mm -hmm. I think we just have to take a step back and say, this is about health, not about safety. And we have to throw out what we've done, which is in school, suspension, expulsion uh, with adults, it's putting them into jails and prisons. And we have to say, okay, how do we do the kinds of things you guys are doing? How do we start with kids and say, purpose is to keep kids, keep kids in their schools. The purpose is to keep adults with their families, to keep them in their jobs, and then figure out what it is we need to do to keep them there. And whether that's a service that's provided on site, and maybe it's provided by a clinician, maybe it's just provided by a peer. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of tools we have in the tool chest. And as I say in the book, it's a chain of neglect when we don't do anything. And there are a lot of ways to break a chain. So I think all of these are potential strategies, and we just have to get everybody in the country who haven't even envisioned the idea of integrating services yet Mm -hmm. in any meaningful way to just start thinking about it. But Paul, you serve on the advisory council at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, along with so many other things that you're doing. We had uh, the administrator, Kana Enomoto, on the show recently talking about efforts to provide more budgetary support for critical behavioral health issues. Certainly, we were talking about the just enormous problem of addiction right now, and particularly opioid addiction. I wonder how your organization is grappling with this mix of both the mental illness issues and also the addiction issues. How are you reaching out to help families who are dealing with addiction as well as mental illness? We have seen, you know, certain drugs become gateways. And I think people think of them as sort of gateways to these worst drugs, the opioids. And thinking particularly of drugs like marijuana, which uh, for, for a lot of our population have been, for lack of a better way to describe it, effective self-management of symptoms um, that have landed people as a gateway to jail. We need to rethink a lot of the way we fought our war on drugs here and make available to people the kinds of, of pharmaceuticals that they need that will actually mitigate symptoms and not really force them into employing strategies to get pharmaceuticals that may be even more highly addictive Mm -hmm. that are creating a lot of the crisis that, frankly, has been around in our country, you know, for generations now, but has been confined largely to low-income communities and Mm -hmm. minority communities. And it's only in recent years that people have begun to notice that actually this is everywhere. I remember, you know, one high school principal telling me, and he was saying, okay, for the first time this year, we're talking 1990s, you know, marijuana was in our high school. And I wanted to tell him, you know, when I was in high school, you know, (laughs) marijuana was in your high school. But, you know, we we ignored some of this for an awful long time. And I think we're paying the price. We've been speaking with Paul Gianfrido, president and CEO of Mental Health America. You can learn more about their work by going to mentalhealthamerica.net or following them on Twitter at Mental Health AM. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. (music) 
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? House Republicans released their replacement plan for the Affordable Care Act on March 6th. How does the GOP's American Health Care Act differ from the ACA? Let's look at the major provisions. The law keeps several aspects of the ACA, including the requirement that insurance companies offer coverage to anyone, regardless of pre-existing conditions, the essential health benefits requirement that plans must cover 10 health services, including maternity coverage and prescription drugs, and the bill keeps the provision allowing young adults under the age of 26 to remain on their parents' plans. So what is eliminated? Under the GOP plan, there's no mandate to have insurance or pay a tax. Businesses with 50 or more full-time workers also aren't required to offer insurance or pay penalties. However, insurance companies can charge 30% higher premiums for one year to those buying their own insurance who didn't have continuous coverage. That's defined as a lapse of coverage of 63 days or more. The law also phases out the Medicaid expansion under the ACA in 2020, at which point no new enrollment under the expansion can occur. The bill doesn't eliminate the Medicaid expansion coverage for those who are enrolled prior to 2020, but if they have a break in coverage for more than one month, they won't be able to re-enroll unless the state wanted to cover the cost itself. Many of the taxes under the ACA are also eliminated, as are cost-sharing subsidies that lower out-of-pocket costs. Premium tax credits stay, however, but instead of a sliding scale based on income, as under the ACA, the Republican plan's tax credits are based on age, with older Americans getting more. Insurers can also charge older Americans up to five times more than younger people. The ratio is three to one under the ACA. The GOP plan places income limits on those tax credits, which, like the ACA, would be available to individuals who buy their own coverage on the individual or non-group market. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Jose Geronimo was studying medicine in his native Peru, he encountered a sobering statistic. While death from cervical cancer had significantly been reduced in the United States, it was still a significant cause of death from women elsewhere in the world. Some 270,000 deaths per year. There are almost 300,000 women dying of cervical cancer every year, and 300,000 women dying without any justification. That is a failure of, of medicine just seeing those women dying. He understood that the greatest challenge was the lack of access to screening for most women living in low-resource areas. Dr. Geronimo decided to make it his mission to eliminate that disparity. He realized that his first step in his campaign to eliminate cervical cancer deaths was to launch a screening for the human papilloma virus, the leading cause of cervical cancer. 
He knew that identifying those women with the virus could narrow their search for those who were most likely to have the disease. There are billions of women in the planet who are too old for this vaccine. They are already sexually active. And those women are at high risk of dying of cervical cancer if we don't do this prevention with affordable screening and affordable treatment. Something simple, something that we can bring everywhere. He also knew a more portable cervical cancer screening and treatment tool needed to be deployed in the field, one that came with its own power source and had the capacity to facilitate removal of cervical lesions in early stage cancer. He launched the CARE HPV program. Creating this very portable device that is powered by a battery that you can charge the battery during the hours you have electricity. The device has its own light to illuminate the service. You can work with this device. You have the power to, to provide the treatment. Jose Geronimo, MD, is the senior advisor for women's cancer with the Reproductive Health Program at PATH, an internal nonprofit organization dedicated to launching innovations to improve global health, where he leads the validation and demonstration of new molecular technologies for cervical cancer screening and evaluation of new treatment modalities for precancerous lesions of the uterine cervix. Since he launched his CARE HPV program, more than 100,000 diagnostic kits and treatment units have been deployed across several countries, providing early-stage treatment and diagnosis for women who previously had no access. Those women who are at risk of dying of cervical cancer in the next year, they are out there. We need to do something now. Providing early-stage treatment and diagnosis for women who previously had no access. A cervical cancer reduction campaign fostered by an aggressive screening treatment program using low-resource tools that are highly effective in the field, yielding better outcomes for tens of thousands of women, helping them avoid an early death. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.